Real Life SEO with Dan Taylor. This week, Real Life SEO continues with Dan Taylor. The Real Life SEO podcast is where we seek to share what SEO specialists do in their day-to-day work and also delve into their specific specializations from content to international SEO to technical SEO and more. Today, we are chatting with Dan Taylor about everything international SEO. This podcast is brought to you by OnCrawl. Hello to all of our listeners, and welcome back to another episode of the Real Life SEO Podcast. Today, I have the pleasure of speaking with Dan Taylor. For those of you working in the SEO industry, you have most probably heard of or met Dan. He's currently head of technical SEO at Salt Agency, but he's also a featured author on a number of different publications, has his own blog, was the host of the Tech SEO Podcast, and is a seasoned speaker at events like Brighton SEO, SearchY Paris, and the SE Ranking Conference. Thanks for joining us today, Dan. How are you doing? I'm doing good. Thank you, Danielle. Thank you for having me. Thanks for joining us. Um, Before we get started, I know you've been working in SEO for quite some time. And as an SEO expert, I have a number of questions and different topics I'd like to touch on with you. But before we get started with that, could you tell us a bit about your background, about yourself, and how you got started in SEO? Yeah, no, absolutely. I think, like a lot of SEOs, I kind of accidentally fell into SEO um, around a decade ago. I always had a plan that I wanted to go and work in marketing of some sorts. I was quite fortunate that when I was 11, um, my dad used to be a radio DJ, and he randomly started to do the stadium announcements and music playing etc at um, a professional football ground um, in the UK and they randomly had a scoreboard well they had I don't say randomly had a scoreboard they had a scoreboard and the operator who was doing that was leaving and my dad just randomly said oh my lad knows how to use computers so aged 11 I learned how to use MDOS systems and I started operating a scoreboard uh, um, Grimsby Town football club and I did that for five years but I was pretty much almost like a pseudo internship in a professional sports club's commercial department and that kind of made me think right I want to go work in business do some sort of marketing and then because of the, the time it was um, digital was becoming a lot more prevalent than offline and analog for want of a better word and yeah just randomly fell into SEO Okay, that's an interesting start. A uh, recurring theme I've seen speaking to other guests on the podcast is it's never been planned. It's always just kind of happenstance and they've fallen into it. But you've been doing it for how many years now? 10, you said? Uh, about 10. I originally started off doing email marketing and social and all the, the stuff which looks exciting when you're at university and out of college and then more special moving to my first specialist seo role i think about eight years ago which was just pure seo and then okay. yeah before that make sure and before that you were doing digital marketing was it a big shift from that to seo in my kind of last role before i moved into seo purely i was kind of managing and liaising with external seo agencies and external ppc and things like that so we kind of I already had a rough idea of what it was going to look like um, going from in-house to agency side to do the SEO element purely. Um, 
it, it was a little bit like a new pair of shoes. It pinched a little bit at the start, but it kind of, it got easier. So for the real life part of the real life SEO, what does your role as head of technical SEO consist of? Um, probably not as much SEO as one might think. <laughs> um, I do a lot of, I wear a number of different hats across the organization. I lead and support the technical team. Um, make sure the product and standards are missing very strong. I do work across a number of our clients, uh, some of mine just historic clients I've had for a number of years from the different roles I've had. I come across and do a lot of troubleshooting with a lot of our technical leads as well. Um, usually when I'm getting pulled into a room, it's going to be just to try and decipher something and work for a lot of theory. It's never just because there's cake or something nice to go on. Um, Mm -hmm. I work a lot, with, I also do uh, other roles in the agency, I support with um, sort of new business acquisition, uh, project scoping, especially since we don't have a sales team or anything like that, so it's, it's more accurate project scoping in that way, and then also the, the kind of marketing side and recruitment really as well. Okay, so do a little bit of everything. Yeah, pretty much everything, I just turn up and drink coffee and just go in different meetings. <laughs> <laughs> that's what a lot of us do too and as you work in agency i'm imagining your company works with a number of different clients but i read on your website that you work a lot with e-commerce retailers and SaaS companies what's the draw for you there is there a particular interest you have or just kind of worked out that way it, 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 I'd say it's probably a combination of it. it started to work out that way, but then it kind of became more interesting. I've been fortunate to work with a lot of complex businesses with the back end side of them and business side of them just being non-linear. Um, I've been fortunate to work with a number of SaaS companies who have both been early stage startups all the way through to big IPO companies. And it's, that additional added value element to SEO, where it's not just I'm here's an SEO function, here's some here's the metrics of rankings and traffic and the keyword elements, which traditionally it's that immersion in tying the strategies to the wider strategies with their other channels, other vendors, and it's just a it's a more I'm trying to think of the best way of raising it. It's a more fulfilling experience than just doing SEO vendorship. Um, we try to work with all our clients like we're an extension of internal teams and we're, we're another seat at their table kind of thing. And I find doing that would be like just personally with large e-com and complex SaaS, sitting down talking to product teams, to sales teams, being part of that immersion just makes campaigns more enjoyable, drives better success, and it's just more fulfilling when to work on. All right. And were those particular industries the stepping stone that brought you into more, more international SEO work? So the international side, again, I kind of fell into. Um, okay. It was predominantly through working with large SaaS companies who predominantly were American-focused and then moving out of America into non-English markets. Um, I'm making early steals on uh, kind of like the Eastern Europe and um, Asian markets as well. So you have to naturally learn that skill set to be able to support with those clients. Right. And then 
from a personal kind of I like pulling on threads to the point I probably unravel the whole sweater, but <laughs> learning the other search engines and the differences and nuances, it's 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 like a different world and it's just interesting just to it's it's like a different rabbit hole to the Google rabbit mm-hmm. hole and the big rabbit hole. So it's it's still a mm-hmm. rabbit hole, but it's just refreshing to have a change of pain points. Yeah, a different one to look into. And so as one of your specializations is international SEO, you've said it's primarily about understanding how people search in different countries and the organic competition as the leading Western SEO in regards to optimizing for Yandex. What would you say are the challenges of Yandex and how does that, or how doesn't it overlap with Google? I think, I mean, my answer to this a year ago would be very different to what it is now, given Mm -hmm. um, how, not necessarily just how Russia has changed inwardly over the last year. Um, The Russian market, even before then, has always been slightly different to Western market in that they have players like Amazon in the form of like Wildberries and Ozone for e-commerce. They have social apps. But Yandex has always been more of an ecosystem than what Google potentially has. Obviously with Google, we've got Drive, we've got Gmail, we've got Yandex. They have their own email solution. They have Disk, which is a Drive equivalent, but they also have, um, they branched out into food delivery. They branched out into entertainment services. They, uh, but it's a much larger ecosystem. They've got Yandex Taxi. They started to do autonomous drone delivery in the US and across Russia. They were heavily involved in the Sputnik vaccination program um, for COVID. It, it, it's a much more immersive element. So people didn't necessarily go to Yandex to perform a search for things that go to something like a Yandex product. So like Yandex Rayon, which is shut down now during COVID, but that was essentially a, like a Craigslist for local services and local elements. It's just how people interacted differently. The other interesting overlap with Google is, I think it was 2018, the um, Russian Roskomnadzor passed a law which basically removed Google's monopoly on Android devices in Russia. Mm-hmm. So Android has a huge market penetration in Russia versus Apple. So by default, you fire up your Android, you've got Chrome. The Russian government changed it so you opened up your Android device you were given a direct pop-up and it said, right, click which browser you want and click which search engine you want. And there was a big market flip almost overnight from Google to Yandex as a search engine. Um, That market is continuing to evolve now um, because of what's happened in the last year. Yandex has sold its news products. It had a blogging platform as well called Zen. That's also now been sold to both of them to be contactor, which is kind of like the Russian Facebook. Um, mm-hmm. They're now rebranding as uh, Yard.ru and trying to focus more on a search product, but potentially more products outside of Russia. So it's a, it's, it's the, the, probably the best way of describing it would be kind of similar to how Baidu has a hold in China. It's not just a search engine, it's an ecosystem of apps, it's payment gateways, it's markets, it's taxis, it's food delivery, it's it's a much more immersive brand almost. Mm-hmm. Okay. And that 
actually leads me to one of my next questions. Before we got started, you mentioned that you're running the Chinese search news and I, you mentioned Baidu. Is it very similar, kind of an all-encompassing type of service product in China? I'd say Baidu's probably got a much higher day-to-day -day life penetration in China than what Yandex does in Russia, just because of how complex and different the two markets are. Um, mm -hmm. In heavily built up areas of Russia, it's probably more akin to that, but obviously Russia's a huge country and it's got different levels of tech penetration, internet access, etc. Whereas China, obviously with all the mega cities, people are a lot more tuned in, especially to smartphones from a much earlier age. So it's a slightly higher uh, penetration element, but yeah, it's much more akin to that. You, you don't just open up Yandex or Baidu to search, you'll open up with multiple things. We're kind of going that way in the, the Western world and how we'll use Google Maps for different things, we'll use Google Travel, Google Holidays, but we still pretty much use Google's front interface to access those. We don't necessarily mm -hmm. go to the standalone products and services. Okay. And touching back on what you mentioned in your previous response, with you know the changes that have taken place in Russia over the past year, has the current political situation impacted European companies ranking or wanting to rank on on Yandex? So that is a that is a two part question. So the direct impact on a non Russian domain or company entity ranking in Yandex as it has previously hasn't changed. Mm -hmm. The desire or want to supply the Russian market, however, I think is the differentiation from different companies. Okay. The, the only company that the Russian government, so again, Russia's changed laws on this, even pre the last 12 months, they introduced something called landing laws, um, which if a company had, I think it's more than 500,000 users, um, whether site users or app users, etc., they had to have a, a landing and actually open a physical presence in Russia. Um, mm -hmm. The only company they appear to be really going after with that is Google. Um, others don't seem to be being pursued in that way. So it, it, it's a it's a complex ecosystem that's probably just got a lot more complex. But the the nuts and bolts of if you wanted to rank on Yandex and sell services or provide or, or be accessible to the Russian market through Yandex as a search engine, that hasn't changed in a negative way just for being a non-Russian entity. Okay, except for Google. Um, <laughs> is Google very present in, in Russia? I thought they were a lot less present than Yandex would be. It, it's changed considerably. So they, it used to be, or Google used to have a lot more presence and a lot more accessibility. But the, the twenty eight, the, the Russian government's been a lot more successful um, in passing anti-monopoly um, legislation than what the EU and other governments have been. Um, mm -hmm. So when they, when they forced Google to do the pop up on all Android devices, um, which was basically like a like you can click here to change your index you're basically increasing the accessibility of other search engines there was a big shift towards the index um in the usage of both either google or yeah i mean google is still present it is potentially not 
as invested in that market right now just due to the government trying to go after them all the time but it very much depends on the city the demographic and the outward attitude towards russian made versus western made um but mm -hmm. yandex's penetration has definitely been improved since for the android um and since monopoly law passed all right and changing kind of course a little bit i wanted to talk a little bit about ai and how that is impacting search these days you wrote an article in 2022 about whether indexing is the next big challenge in seo and with the recent release of the chat gpt what do you think the role of ai in search engines will be um, other than google and bing i think it'll be quite similar across all of them um pertaining to like what my article actually kind of had and i'm going to be honest that was a lot my article stemmed just from a what if and a few conspiracy theories thrown in there i think i do caveat early on but i did probably go into it with a team full hat on and um like a circle of salt around me but right. we we can see with all of google's core updates bing's updates even what yandex have done with vega and their update systems um baidu and their uh updates like the um uh, apollo winds and different elements we're gonna search engines are moving definitely towards a better understanding of quality um this isn't something new having that additional e added to eat in the quality rating guidelines for me eat has been and, and things like that which all search engines use a formula of um, I believe, just from trying to remember now, I think from uh, Baidu, it's called a Blue Sky algorithm. In Yandex, it's different algorithms that combine that. Uh, Bing will have something like that, but they don't name anything, um, outwardly at least. But even since each as a concept was introduced, Google and other search engines have been focused on beneficial purpose, page quality, um, and those terminologies thrown in there. So as AI, like, let's be fair, the biggest shakeup's gonna be AI generation of content and the AI generation of our mass. And the market I think that's gonna affect most is the probably the lower end of the market anyway, which is cost sensitive towards producing content. And Google uh, came out last year and they said that 60% of the internet is duplicate in their eyes. That doesn't necessarily mm -hmm. mean duplicate as in verbatim word for word. It's, it's duplicate in terms of value proposition. Do we need a million websites indexed or a million pages indexed which tell you um, the, the cooking times for how to do a soft-boiled or a hard-boiled egg? The answer is mm -hmm. no. Could we probably get away with a thousand versus a million? Yep. So we'll save money and save resource by dropping 999,000 from the index from not crawling them as frequently or at all and then focusing on the ones which actually add a value and if you want if you produce a new page on how to boil an egg and you want it to be crawled on your new domain we've already seen a shift we've already got manual url submission in google that's been around for at least as long as i can remember mm -hmm. we've got index now adopted by bing and yandex the URL submission, and that's been more heavily integrated with Google trialing it. it it's, it's a 
is a value-based system. And whilst chat, GPT and everything will be impactful in the content terms, if it's not adding that value, it's not going to solve any problems that we try to do as SEOs. The only threat I see really from it is the same threat that voice search posed in the sense that, and not not to use the, I think it was the 2016 Comscore um, stat of 40% of all searches will be voice searched by 2020 mm-hmm. or, one or something like that, because we're still about a few millennia from there. But um, it's like with you.com adopting that instant answer, almost automated chatbot element there. And I've had advances to a point where it can use, like Google can utilize their knowledge graph for it. They can utilize the features, what they currently do for feature snippets, which is, which has errors, but are still a high degree of accuracy. And the same systems are used for voice search. We enter an element of where people will be entering a search term or search query or a question. And Google doesn't need to pull the search results back. It'll pull back essentially what they already have as featured snippets now, like they do with voice search. And then you'll probably have an option to perform a search. It's how we track that. It's how we optimize for it. But the value of potentially all that long tail and top of funnel and research level queries for a lot of brands where we produce blog articles and support centers and learning centers, which we will still have to do because mm-hmm. there'll be a percentage of people who will still need to digest the content. But it's what percentage of that level is going to be skimmed off by that process. And then how do we do the attribution? How do we show the value provided for it? And how importantly do we track it? Because I know if you went to say 100 websites and 100 CMOs and just said you're going to lose 25% of all your traffic next year, but people might still get some brand visibility, but we can't measure it. Mm-hmm. They're just going to go, well, there's 25% of your budget gone then. And because business is working a direct ROI system. So that for me is the threat of where ChatGP comes to our industry. But in terms of the content production elements like that, it's not necessarily the same level. Okay. And you mentioned that ideally the uh, idea would be to reduce, you know, how many websites are indexed, mentioning how to how to do a hard-boiled egg. At that point, how do you determine what's helpful, what's useful, which sites are more relevant than others? What, what would those metrics be, look like? I'd probably say Google's already doing that in how it commonly ranks websites now. Um, we know Google will, Google's getting a very strong interpretation of not just the intent behind the query, so it's that kind of commercial, informational, navigational, etc., but also understanding if I search for, say, I don't know, Adidas sneakers, it'll understand right. Adidas website and Adidas strong retailer will be a strong one's returns it's recognized the entity he knows i'm looking for a specific product so therefore adidas homepage might not be relevant but i'll serve a category page i then also might be looking for reviews i might be looking for relevance so it will start to bring in different source types and different um websites so by source types different website types so not just e-commerce but like um like a sole supplier and other random review sites for shoes now, we know that Google has the quality threshold for what is and isn't indexed, and that every each source type, even for the same query, has a different quality threshold. So that's where, like, keyword difficulty scores now fall down because 
the threshold's different for each quality point. So it's already doing that determination and producing a linear list of say one to ten, one to twenty. Now mm -hmm. we know above position twenty, there's usually quite a bit of volatility in search ranking because the data isn't as strong. But for that first ten to twenty, it will have strong uh, crux data, run data. It will be measuring SERP. It will be measuring backclicks, tabbing, um, search stacking. So it's already got a massive data pool on whether or not the search results it's returning are relevant and helpful and mm -hmm. through if people if, if they're returning 10 results and people are clicking on result six more than result one over time they test and change and we see this happening so they've already got that data to a point so if you're not able to add any additional value to that page one or that top 2025 or you're a website which just produces random content based on trends to capitalize on it for ad revenue and things like that, again, going back to beneficial purpose and source type, you will be in a position where Google's like, well, if you want us to consider you through this page, you need to submit it to us and we'll check it. Otherwise, we're good not crawling your know, hundreds of random pages and wasting resource because, I mean, we saw that last year via the server fire at one of Google's answers. Um, it makes business sense as well because the world's climate's adapting it's getting hotter data centers are naturally huge centers of heat because of all the electric and electric consumption so there's electric consumption to use them there's electric consumption to cool them it, it's that kind of breaking point of well if 60 percent of the internet is not adding value why do we need to pay to store it because no search engines are charity they're all businesses at the end of the day and Right. For pretty much all search engines, search is the lost leader. They make your money from the ads in other places. It's people go to them for the organic search, but they make the money from the, the revenue, like the, the little additions of the checkouts and things like that. That's where they make the money. So if they can cut 60% of the lost leader costs, every business would. Right. And now that Bing wants to integrate Chat GPT, do you have any insights or kind of intuitions based on your experience how that's gonna play out i mean especially considering some of the concerns with the false answers that the chat gpt can provide what do you kind of see panning out i think with anything and even with how search is now there's degrees of certainty for different queries and different query levels and um, we all know that the more people who search a query, the more investment that query gets in terms of um, being on a better server, a higher tier of shard, if you like, or it has more experiments done on it because the more eyes that see that query, the more eyes in theory will see adverts. So you need to maintain product quality. It might be that when the search engines roll out this chat GPT engine, it doesn't actually work for all queries because there's going to be a lot of niche queries and especially the, the first time queries for google keep banging on about like the trillions they see every year the first time this has ever been searched and there's going to be degrees of confidence but i they collect but because of how much data they'll be collecting and also the, the feedback triggers they're doing and the little smiley faces they're trying to push on you all the time in search of a moment from further validation it might be a slow rollout across 
certainty and confidence levels for queries. U.com moving with it as early as they have, I think will probably pave away how the others go about it. And again, mm-hmm. this this is obviously assumative, but I assume U.com doesn't have the same data level that Bing or Google would have. But mm-hmm. by them going first, Bing and Google will infinitely learn so much more just from how it, that adoption is taken and then how they roll it out to themselves. Okay, I'm curious to see how that's that's all going to play out. That was a bit of a rabbit hole that I wanted to go down in terms of AI and search, but I'd like to circle back a little bit to international SEO and ask, what is your take on hreflang today, and what is it used for? So hreflang's use, I believe, is still the same as what it always has been. It's um, it's the directives of trying to well of of informing search engines of alternate versions of pages designed for different languages and then secondary location. I think when it was first implemented, it was a lot more, I mean, I I still remember this, I think the Search Engine Journal who did a study, I think four or five years ago, where they found that 75% of SEOs find hreflang difficult um, to implement, Mm -hmm. it was the hardest thing to implement. I think from a mechanical perspective, it's not what it's it's no more difficult than schema. It's easy okay. to validate. Pretty much every tool on the market can validate it for you, site bulb can. I mean, we built a, a, a hreflang validator as well online and it, it, it's it's just it follows a set of rules. There's no variation from the rules. All you can do is like with schema, not format it correctly or don't follow the rules and then you'll break it. How search engines interpret it, however, I think is part of the evolution of just how search engines are in general. Um, like, and I come across this a lot, especially in the English and Spanish markets, where you'll have a, um, and this is, this just comes from businesses trying to set up websites mirroring internal business functions. So you'll have a website um, which might be your core site for the US, and you'll create English for the UK, English for Canada, English for India, English for Australia. And the idea behind that is people, well, sorry, consumers in those regions will land on those pages, they'll fill in forms, and those forms will then go to the correct SDRs because that's how the backend system set up. Now, when Google looks at, say, say, say you're selling the same virtual product in each of those markets, and Google looks at your five product pages, if there's no discernible value proposition or beneficial purpose that you can look at that and go, well, that page is definitely for the US, that page is definitely for an Australian, that page is definitely for an Indian. Currency doesn't cut it. It has to have just the, it has to have a beneficial purpose and the value proposition you need to. Otherwise, again, the search engine looks and goes, well, that's the same page. So going back to Hate for Flying being a directive, it can be ignored. And that's where you get um, Google choosing to override the canonical and it'll mm-hmm. canonicalize back, which when you validate hreflang, yeah, it works fine, but you're now falling short of the quality elements. And mm-hmm. Google may still serve on a live SERP, the correct version. However, in Search Console, you get the error. Technically, then you get return tag breakage and it all kind of falls apart. So it's a, 
for me, the main issue of Hreflang is that the bis- this is how a business works. So this is how the website will be set up. And it's like, well, just add additional value. And that additional value can be, I mean, I've seen it be full page rewrites with tests like, for example, the US versus Australia be changed for testimonials from a generic business in the, in like New York to a business in Sydney to make it more localized, um, template site changes. Even some point on a travel website I worked on, which had 16 versions of English, mm-hmm. the South African product pages were ranking above anything else because the South African page had an additional widget on it. And it was like mm-hmm. a H3 of three words and five lines of text and a link to a blog. But it was the one differentiating factor between all 16 versions of the same page and different currency. So even with Hreflang, the South African page is just ranked globally because you mm-hmm. as, as having the highest value proposition. Okay. What are some of the bigger challenges you've come across when implementing or cleaning up Hreflang on any global websites? The main challenge is, I mean, from a mechanical perspective, it, it can be stack dependent. I mean, a lot of platforms and CMSs now are very easy to do this with. Um, you typically run into problems more of a moment with uh, things like React and custom built JavaScript frameworks, just where potentially it wasn't scoped in early on or um, how they produce. I mean, there's some sites which I still work on now, but um, just basically flat HTML files and they render them headlessly in a framework. So you have to probably you have to sometimes be creative so that's where things like edge seo come into play and you can just like implement all the hreflang through the cdn layer as a, a html injection um it's, it's usually scale at the moment on headless or custom built stacks but most out of the box platforms can pretty much cater hreflang well nowadays and have any of the best practices evolved over the past few years anything you've seen in particular stand out I'd, pro- Ooh. I'd probably say the best, what I mean, we, the, the technical best practices are pretty much stayed the same. How, when, when the mechanics of it, when it was introduced versus how it is now, pretty much the same. I'd probably say now the best practice is more tying it into the actual overall objective of what the business is trying to achieve and not just doing that direct mirroring of the business function. Um, mm-hmm. And that can be achieved in slightly different ways, like not not for example, not using IP detection for say redirects, but using IP detection for um, a backend element of the form. So even if you do have the sixteen versions of English and somebody from um, Oceana lands on the US website, it's still detected that they're in Auckland, and the form will still go to the correct SDR team, for example. It's, it's mechanics of functioning towards the objective, but the actual HF line function is pretty much the same. All right. And I know that international SEO is one of your specializations. With all of the different types of clients you get to interact with um, and the different kind of tasks as part of your, your overall mission, what interests you the most in SEO? At the moment, we'll say. Make it a little easier. <laughs> <laughs> At the moment, 
I'd probably say the indexing elements of how we're seeing different, um, how Google's treating larger sites, um, particularly across e-commerce, um, and especially in e-commerce where you're not necessarily manufacturing your own products. Um, so, for example, like you're, you're, uh, I work with a client that sells Pokemon cards, for example, and mm-hmm. everyone who sells Pokemon cards sells the same card. There's no added value to the product. There's no additional things you can do. So it's about creating more and further unique value propositions on product pages and then categories, not only to basically to improve conversion rate and increase user trust but also differentiation factors because when you've got mass product duplication in saturated markets we've seen correlated de-indexing spells with uh, unconfirmed confirmed google updates but when you put a kind of a moat around things of value proposition it's the de-indexing hasn't been as bad or hasn't occurred at all because you're adding something different to our market. So how, for me, large e-commerce at the moment is probably the most my most interesting projects because it's trying to overcome those barriers. But then you're looking at things like PIM enrichment and uh, internal linking elements and how you can break from that traditional e-commerce model of here's a homepage, here's some category pages, here's some subcategories, here's some products. Let's just add everything to a basket, but how you can enhance that and mm-hmm. almost cross-link your main and supporting content elements to just be better as a value proposition really in the marketplace. And coming up on a couple, my last two questions, indexing aside, do you foresee any other big challenges coming up for SEOs? Um, I think the one, the main one we kind of touched on earlier is just how chat gpt or gpt technologies and ai are actually further enhanced because it could we we historically if we look back at how things can go and this is why i kind of mentioned voice search as well it kind of feels like we're in that early early stage of oh voice search is going to be 40 percent of everything by 2020 we need to optimize for feature snippets we need to do xyz and that petered out into nothingness um mm-hmm. i kind of feel we're at that precipice at the moment and it, it it's how we prepare for it but also how at the moment we're preparing conversations around it because there's the conversations to have with clients of this is a really strong opportunity um but at the same point similar voice search which we took feature snippets has been the way to go for it we don't know how to optimize for this so it's a here's a great market opportunity but when it comes to being able to track it give you any attribution or show you any roi on the money you're spending with us um the answer's a lemon and i can't give you a number so it's it's preparing mm-hmm. businesses for that um but okay. that's for me the, the big challenge aside from indexing all right. And final question. I always like to end the interviews with this question. Is there anything you'd like to add? Anything you think it's important for the SEO industry? Anyone working in the industry or anyone who wants to enter the industry? What What's the takeaway you would like to share? I think for me, anyone who's wanting to enter the SEO industry, 
best piece of advice I was given at the start, and I think it still rings true now, is literally to question everything and actively mm-hmm. go out of your way to find counter perspectives. Um, I, I speak to a lot of SEOs, and we have I mean we have our own training program at Salt for new entry SEOs and everything else. And I speak to a lot of people who they're told. It's almost like a little bit 1984-ish. They're told the sky is blue and the grass is green, but they've never actually gone out to check whether or not the sky is blue or the grass is green. And it's like, mm-hmm. well, they'll read a study and go, oh, if we do this to the title tags, it'll do X, Y, Z. It's like, right, go and find, for every for me, every study and research paper you find that says X, go find one that counters X, go find one that has a different result, and then try to apply it and use almost develop a critical thinking and apply it back because that's the trap that a lot of SEOs for me fall into, especially when starting out, is they see things that work, they see the case studies, and then they try to apply the same coat of paint to their scenario, and it doesn't always work and all results will vary, and you don't always know all the things that play. I mean, I remember reading a study six years ago where somebody said that they they got a no-follow link off a tool provider's profile page and mm-hmm. it pointed to their company homepage and they shared a graph of link inserted and then this graph gradually going up of performance and they went and they wrote this big 1,000 page what word study not 1,000 page what was a word study on them <laughs> why this one no-follow link led to all the success and I had someone come to me and I sent it to like a couple of these acts and I was like, oh, but we should go get this link. And I'm like, right, no, no, pick it apart. Go look at the website in the way back the machine. Go look and see if anything else has changed. And then Mohan came back like half an hour later and I was like, oh yeah, they changed title tags. They added more content. They changed internal links. I'm like, yeah. So you need to, you need to look at something and go, oh, that's a, like, look at studies and look at research and look at articles and, take people i, I mean I, I i hate to use the word expert all i like to say is i just go and share stories and anecdotes and mm-hmm. hopefully that gets people thinking go and actually try to prove me wrong i mean come to me and show me that you've proved me wrong so i'm learning that it doesn't always work that way and you're learning not to follow me blindly mm-hmm. that's great i really like that thank you well those are all my questions dan thank you so much for joining us today No, thank you very much for having me, Danielle. I learned quite a bit, and I'm sure our listeners did too. So for anyone listening, thanks for joining us. And as always, happy crawling. Thanks again, Dan. That's it for our episode today. I hope you enjoyed it. If you did, please don't hesitate to follow us. You can also rate and review the show to help other listeners find us. Don't forget to join us soon for our next episode of Real Life SEO. And as always, happy crawling.